There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. Democracies don't have to die at the end of a rifle. They can die when people are silent, when they fail to stand up or condemn the threats to democracy. A very revealing split screen today with President Biden standing up for democracy while Republicans held a three ring circus of a hearing struggling to find a rationale, any rationale to impeach Joe Biden with their own witnesses saying there's no there there. I am not here today to even suggest that there was corruption, fraud or any wrongdoing. In my opinion, more information needs to be gathered and assessed before I would make such an assessment. In fact, I do not believe that the current evidence would support articles of impeachment. And we begin tonight with President Biden addressing the nation today on one of the greatest threats our country faces ahead of next year's election, the threat to democracy. The blunt warning from the president couldn't come at a more fitting moment, as today is also the last day on the job for the man who, in 2020, stood directly between Donald Trump and a coup. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley. You'll remember that it was Milley who talked Trump out of using the Insurrection Act on civilians during the 2020 protests following the killing of George Floyd, pushing back against Trump when he reportedly told officials to crack the skulls or just shoot those protesters. Trump then used Milley as a prop for the autocrats in his entourage walk to his photo op in front of St. John's Episcopal Church in Washington, where Trump held a Bible upside down after protesters were forcibly cleared from Lafayette Square. Milley, to his credit, peeled off before the before the group that also included Attorney General Bill Barr, Trump's hatchet man, got to the church. And he later apologized to members of the military, infuriating Trump. But perhaps General Milley's most notable accomplishments took place in the period between the 2020 election and Biden's inauguration, where he fought seemingly daily battles to protect our democracy from Donald Trump's determination to destroy it. Milley vowed during those months that there would be no coup on his watch, reportedly telling some of his closest deputies they may try, but they're not going to effing succeed. He was who Speaker Nancy Pelosi called after the January 6th insurrection, asking if the nation's nuclear weapons were secure, to which Milley reportedly replied, I want you to know this in your heart of hearts. I can guarantee you 110 percent that the military use of our military power, whether it's nuclear or a strike in a foreign country of any kind, we're not going to do anything illegal or crazy. General Milley did everything in his power to defend the Constitution and to prevent the military from being deployed against the American people right up until the moment Joe Biden was sworn in, which makes it completely unsurprising that he is the target of Trump's bitterness and rage to the point where the former president suggested in writing on his social media platform that Milley should be executed, something President Biden directly addressed in his speech today. Here is what you hear from MAGA extremists 
about the retiring Patriot General honoring his oath to the Constitution. Quote, he's a traitor, end of quote. In times gone by, the punishment, quote, in times gone by, the punishment would have been death, end of quote. This is the United States of America. This is the United States of America. And although I don't believe even the majority of Republicans think that, the silence is deafening. The silence is deafening. President Biden didn't stop there. He went on to forcefully speak out against MAGA Republicans and all of the threats that they pose to our democratic institutions. Democracy means rule of the people, not rule of monarchs, not rule of the money, not rule of the mighty. Regardless of party, that means respecting free and fair elections, accepting the outcome, win or lose. It means you can't love your country only when you win. There's no question that the day's Republican Party is driven and intimidated by MAGA Republican extremists. Their extreme agenda, if carried out, would fundamentally alter the institutions of American democracy as we know it. The MAGA extremists across the country have made it clear where they stand. So the challenge for the rest of America, for the majority of Americans, is to make clear where we stand. It is a stark reminder that next year's election is about more than just Democrat versus Republican. It's about whether or not we as a nation remain a democracy. Because if Trump wins a second term, there might not be another General Mark Milley there to stop him. Joining me now is Ann Applebaum, staff writer for The Atlantic, and Helene Cooper, Pentagon correspondent for The New York Times. Thank you both for being here. Helene, I do want to start with you. You wrote an excellent piece um, that lays out this really kind of terrifying timeline of General Milley's tenure as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Donald Trump, all the way from him hearing about the George Floyd uh, incident to him having to essentially stand between this country in a coup. Um, your assessment on this, his last day at work, because we, you know, we have a civilian controlled military, which is great unless the civilian in control is an autocrat who wants to use the military against the American people. We came very close to having that. And thank God Mark Milley was there. I'm just, I would love to just hear your assessment on this, his last day and on what President Biden had to say about all of the threats to democracy. Well, thanks for having me, Joy. You know, I totally forgot that Trump held that Bible upside down until you played that just now. Um, uh, It's been a wild, wild ride for Mark Milley. Uh, I had forgotten so much of what happened as I was working on this story over the past three weeks. And each time I thought I was done I would remember something else or go back and something else would crop up. Uh, but it, it, the, that period that you're, re, you, you're referring to between election day and, and January, January 20th of 2020, I would actually start it a little bit earlier. I think for Millie, the, the, the break with Trump came when he apologized for that walk uh, across Lafayette Park, Trump was very angry at that point and asked him, demanded to know why he had apologized. He thought he saw that as a moment of weakness. And Milley, uh, General Milley, after that, spent a lot of time sort of trying to make sure that uh, President Trump and the people around Trump did not 
uh, end up doing a wag the dog type scenario or leading the United States into any kind of unnecessary uh, 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 war or strikes. There were there was a moment that I recount in my story that uh, that Mark Esper, the former Defense Secretary, writes about in his book, where Mark Milley came up to him uh, in Colorado Springs at a ceremony and said he had just received a call from then National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien wanting to strike an, uh, another general a general in a, uh in a, in Iran and there was no vetting of that nothing like that and they thought at the time that this was Trump trying to use this for political gain because he was the elections were coming up so it didn't just start you know in on election day but on right after election day after Trump lost he hadn't conceded yet and the first thing one of the first things he did was to decide he was going to shake up the Pentagon. He fired Mark Esper, the defense secretary, who at the time we couldn't stand. And he brought in a lot of loyalists, including a new acting defense secretary who nobody had ever heard of. There was a lot of concern then, a lot of talk about using uh, Mike Flynn, this other uh, uh, Trump uh, acolyte and former national security advisor, wanted to use the military to stage a coup. Uh, there was a lot of talk about that. And and this was a really perilous time. You know, we forget about that period because January 6th sucked up all the oxygen. But yeah. in the days before January 6th, there was just so much uh, going on. And as, as Trump at the time continued to try to look for every which way he could to stay in power. So there was a lot of worry, worry that I felt like I had a little bit of PTSD working on the story. <laughs> as did so many of us, as did we all, you know, and the ways in which one could describe the United States in the last several years are the ways that we would think we would describe other countries, not our own. Right. I mean, the fact that we almost had a military coup, but for the, the Mark Millies of the world who refused to allow the military to be used that way. The fact that Donald Trump wanted to use the military to shoot protesters so that he would look strong. The fact that he tried to emulate Vladimir Putin in so many ways. And the fact that we actually had an armed attack on our own capital by American citizens. I just wonder how you look at this, you know, what lens you're looking at. I mean, you study autocracies and it, it we're very close to slipping into one and we could still. So I think two things are important to say. One is that the United States is actually much more of an outlier among other democracies than we think. And we are in many ways much farther, as you say, down the road towards autocracy in a lot of different ways. If you look at American democracy at the state level, and there are a lot of states where um, you know, one side or the other has gerrymandered the system in such a way that nobody, the other side can't win. Um, but we also now have, as the president said in his speech today, we have one of our major political parties, which now uses the language of autocrats. It talks about traitors. It talks about crushing enemies. It threatens violence. Um, it, it intimidates people. Um, the, you know, the, we, we know that there are Republicans in Congress who are afraid to say things in public because they don't, you know, what will happen when I go home? They'll intimidate my wife. Um, that's now a real uh, part of American politics that, um, that wasn't there before. Um, and the second thing to say about, about your, your, your story tonight is that you know, one of the things that has protected the United States is Millie and people like Millie. In other words, people who see that they owe a neutral duty to the Constitution. So they're 
They're in power, but they're in power not to serve a particular president, but to serve a bigger idea. And so that would be people in the military, people in the civil service, um, people at the FBI, uh, you know, there's a range of people who feel they who who have that obligation. And we've we've got used to the idea that there are such people in America, but there are a lot of countries where that doesn't exist, where civil servants get appointed because they're somebody's cousin or, um, you know, the, the 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 police are loyal to the person in power and not to the law. Um, and we are really at risk of um, of losing that group of people, that tradition of of neutrality in our country. You know, and the, yeah, President Biden today, he said, imagine the chancellor of Germany uh, saying to Mr. President, what would you think if you picked up the paper tomorrow, the London Times, and it said a thousand people broke down the doors of parliament, marched and killed uh, two body and killed two bobbies in order to overthrow the election? What would you think then? I mean, you know, and it, it, we can imagine that now. Also, the thing is, and to your point, Anne, there's also the kind of leaders who are intellectually curious which are the kind of people that Donald Trump is vowing to drive from government if he comes back. He wants no intellectual curiosity, just submission. I just want to play um, what I thought was one of Mark Milley's finest hours. It's when he testified to the House Armed Services Committee about what the FBI has acknowledged is the biggest threat to our national security. Here he is. I want to understand white rage, and I'm white, and I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America. What caused that? I want to find that out. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? The next generation uh, of leaders in the United States military, Helene, if they're dealing with a Donald Trump as president again, then what? It's such a good question. And I think, uh, but I don't know for sure that uh, the military is supposed to be apolitical. Uh, but Donald Trump went a long way to politicize the military. He was, in the end, he was not able to do it because uh, General Milley stood up to him. Right. In some ways, his defense uh, secretaries uh, stood up to him. Uh, but he, you know, he went through several of them. Uh, he came close. He wanted to fire General Milley, but he yep. was worried that the entire joint staff, uh, all the chairmen would, um, would resign. Resign. So, what? Uh, who does he appoint next? Does he end up? We've got a new chairman coming up uh, uh, behind General Milley. It's going to be yeah. uh, Charles C.Q. Brown. He's a he's an African American fighter pilot, and he's going to be the next chairman. And he will be the chairman for Joe Biden and for right. whoever comes after comes whoever in 2024. So, what happens then? Uh, you know, it's a it's it, it puts an enormous amount of stress on what is supposed to be an apolitical military when you're pulling them in in that uh, direction. And yeah. we should also remember that this is an all-volunteer force, you know? So we risk breaking the military when you start putting them in 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 these sorts of situations. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think I note that we were in Arizona listening. To, well, President Biden was in Arizona. You know, it seems a million years ago when John McCain, who was had his own, you know, issues and flirted with extremism with Sarah Palin and the whole nine defended Barack Obama against one of his own supporters who said he, he's a Muslim and a terrorist, which is nothing wrong with being a Muslim and he's not a terrorist. 
Smith uh, and gave an actual concession speech at what had to have been the worst moment of his life. You know, a war hero who lost an election to a almost sort of new neophyte politician. But he did give the concession speech. We can't count on that anymore, Anne, that there will be a concession speech when an American president loses an election. Yeah, no, Trump Trump broke a very long tradition. And that's that's connected to what we were just talking about before. This idea that there's something higher, you know, Biden referred to it repeatedly in his speech today. He kept saying, you know, I was able to fight with John McCain. I could argue with John McCain. And afterwards, you know, we'd go out to lunch together. We could stay friends. And what he meant by that was we can have our differences over policy, but ultimately we agree that we abide by the rules of the Constitution and we're, we're members of the same political system. What we now have in the United States that we haven't had for many years is, as Biden rightly said, a part of the Republican Party that doesn't think that way. You know, they're they're not willing to abide by the rules and they won't make concession speeches because they don't respect the system and they don't feel part of it anymore. And that is actually the danger. So it's not Republicans versus Democrats. It's the people who want to stay within the bounds of the Constitution, those who want to break it. And I think Biden is absolutely right to point to that um, problem and to and to remind people that partisanship is an important part of the American sorry nonpartisanship bipartisanship yeah. is a part of the American uh, tradition too yeah uh, and it seems that a million miles uh, ago that that was normal politics it's frightening stuff but we say on the show scaring is caring uh, and Applebaum thank you Helene Cooper thank you both very much up next on the readout it is no coincidence that President Biden chose Arizona the home of election denying officials and a hotbed of far-right fanaticism for his speech on democracy today. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. For John, it was country first. Sounds like a, like a movie, but it's real with John. Honor, duty, decency, freedom, liberty, democracy. And now history has brought us to a new time of testing. What will we do to maintain our democracy? Will we, as John wrote, never quit? Will we not hide from history, but make history? Will we put partisanship aside and put country first? I say we must and we will. If there was any state that most needed to hear that message of putting the country first, it would be Arizona. The Grand Canyon state has become the epicenter of the right-wing extremism movement. 
There was no state party more engaged in the Trumpian efforts to overturn the 2020 election than the Arizona Republican Party. Like, say, searching for bamboo fibers during their audit effort to prove the conspiracy theory that fraudulent ballots had been flown in from China. Then there was the extremely partisan audit itself led by the Cyber Ninjas, a company that had no experience auditing elections, which, surprise, surprise, found no fraud. Of course, none of that seemed to convince the losing Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake that both she and Trump had lost the election. She's still tilting at that particular windmill while preparing to announce her candidacy for the United States Senate. But Arizona's history with the extremist movement goes back well before this last presidential election. Let's not forget Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was one of the OGs when it came to the birther movement against Barack Obama. It was also the home of Barry Goldwater, whose actual campaign theme in 1964 was extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. His philosophy transformed the conservative movement and gave us Ronald Reagan. Arizona was also the last state in the country to officially recognize Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And that actually cost them the opportunity to host the Super Bowl back in 1993. It's also the state where Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh hatched his heinous plot with the help of other residents of the state. Joining me now is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University and author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Thank you both. both, Thank you for being here, uh, Ruth. Let's talk about it, because Arizona is a particularly weird state. Uh, One of my um, wonderful producers, Tiffany, calls it the Florida of the West, Uh, um, because it's got a lot of the same kind of vibe, right? Um, Because extremism is also flourishing in Florida. What is it about Arizona that seems to nurture? I mean, what is it about maybe, I guess we should say not just Arizona, but American society that is nurturing this sort of tendency toward really radical extremism in the last several years? I mean, for for some of the Western states, you you know, a lot of these extremists are anti-government extremists. And it's very uh, it's very telling that Mark Fincham, who is a self-proclaimed proud Oath Keeper member, uh, was the candidate for secretary of state. I mean, that should give us all pause. Um, And he's thinking of running for office again. And, you know, seeing the trajectory from John McCain to the Carrie Lakes and and Mark Fincham's is, you know, the history of the the change of the Republican Party that's become fused with uh, anti-government extremists and all kinds of extremists. There was a 2022 study that said one in five uh, GOP leaders at the state and local level either have sympathies or affiliations with some kind of far right or extremist movement. And so Arizona is a, a center of that. And you have this kind of radical individualism um, that flourishes there and in some other, you know, Western states in Texas. But uh, I was I was very struck that they put Mark Fincham up for the secretary of state. And we really need to take you know, very seriously how uh, this fusion between the Proud Boys and all the other extremist groups is going on. And so this is part of the GOP's trajectory to become an autocratic party. And we should also mention it's a state and it is part of the country that is also armed to the teeth. So when they're making these kinds of statements, they are people who are stockpiling serious weapons, AR-15s and other assault-style weapons. Paul Gosar, uh, an extremist even to his own kin, um, he said after Donald Trump said that Mark Milley, General Mark Milley, should be executed, this was his follow-up to that, his follow-on. 
In his newsletter, in a better society, quizzlings like the strange sodomy promoting General Milley would be hung. So talking about lynching the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that's just common practice now among an elected official. Even five, well, not even five, maybe 10 years ago, somebody like that would be ex- would be at least threatened with expulsion from, college, from, from Congress. Now it doesn't even get a mention from the normie politicians. Why? Yeah, because uh, unfortunately for us uh, in America, the GOP, you know, we only have these two parties uh, uh, and one of them has become an authoritarian party that is dependent on violence and on corruption uh, for its identity. In fact, the values of the coup attempt, a third of my book is about coups, (laughs) the values of the coup attempt, meaning you you use violence to move history forward. Um, you lie about things, it becomes institutionalized lying. Those, that's the dogma of the Republican Party now. And, you know, election denial, which is Carrie Lake's thing and so many others, it's not just um, a piece of propaganda where you're believing, you know, you're, you're stating a lie. It's actually a practice of corruption. And the end game of election denial is to get Americans to think that uh, elections are so corrupt that they're not a good way to really decide how we should elect leaders. And Tommy Tuberville, of course, came out and said, we don't really need elections anymore. So uh, I'm very, I watch very carefully what these people say, and I take it seriously. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Jacob Tansley, they call him the QAnon shaman, who sort of became very famous as a sort of ridiculous looking, uh, uh, you know, insurrectionist on January 6th. He started his game among the people who are menacing poll workers in Arizona. And I think people forget there was a trajectory of threatening and intimidating election workers before January 6th. How concerned are you that the next election um, will be surrounded by a veil of violence and threats of violence from Republicans um, essentially demanding that they be placed in office, whether they win or not? In, the, in 2024? Oh, I'm very worried about it. I, I was writing about the election uh, workers' threats uh, in 2021 um, because, you know, when, when President Biden, uh, I was really glad that he called out the um, role that silence can have in allowing authoritarianism to, to take hold. You know, he said democracy doesn't just die through, through violence or guns. It's when people feel too intimidated or afraid to speak out. Um, And we see that it's very sad that this is some of the most powerful people in our country, lawmakers with great resources and security. They feel too afraid or they're too conformist or too cowardly to to speak out. And when people stop uh, speaking out, that allows authoritarianism to take hold because the goal of autocrats is to get you to Mm self-censor. Then you're doing their job for them. And so all these, it's like an enormous effort at the level of, you know, important, you know, lawmakers, senators, but also election workers and all over the country. And it's quite devastating if you add all of that up. Absolutely. And I will reiterate again that one of the reasons they're afraid is, again, the Republican base is armed to the teeth with weapons that and can outgun any police department uh, and that are close to what the army is carrying. And that's what they're, they're stockpiling it, not for no reason. They're stockpiling it because they do want to intimidate the rest of us and they do want to dominate this country and they don't want consent 
They want compliance and obedience. Uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, thank you very much. We appreciate all the work that you do. Still ahead, if you were betting on House Republicans' impeachment inquiry into President Biden being a complete and utter clown show, congratulations, you're officially a winner. Grab some popcorn. That's next. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. We are just two short days away from a government shutdown that will leave roughly 7 million women and children without SNAP benefits, which means that they could go hungry. Active duty military members will go without pay. Farmers loans will not be processed and small business funding will come to a stop. Meanwhile, Republicans spent some of the precious few hours that they have left holding their first hearing on Trump's revenge tour, an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And let me just tell you, It was an unmitigated disaster for Republicans. And those reviews are coming from other Republicans. One Republican staffer told The Messenger that Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer and his staff botched this bad. How bad? Well, their witnesses, who had no facts to present, told the committee that they had no case for impeaching President Biden. I want to emphasize what it is that we're here today for. This is a question of an impeachment inquiry. It is not a vote on articles of impeachment. In fact, I do not believe that the current evidence would support articles of impeachment. Oops. Their case was so weak that at one point, committee Republicans presented falsified evidence. Earlier today, one of our colleagues, a gentleman from Florida, presented up on this screen something that looked, appeared to be, a screenshot of a text message containing or insinuating an explosive allegation. That screenshot of what appeared to be a text message was a fabricated image. Wow, but this isn't about the truth, okay, clearly. This is about settling scores. We're here because of math. That's what this is about. They can't save Donald Trump. They can't take away the two impeachments and the four indictments, but they can try to put some numbers on the board for Joe Biden. But the problem is when you sling mud, you gotta have mud. If you all think there's so much evidence, we're here, call the vote on impeachment. Impeach him right now, I dare you. Joining me now is the congressman you just saw, Democrat Jared Moskowitz of Florida and Basil Smeichel, Democratic strategist and director of the public policy program at Hunter College. Congressman, I'm just gonna let you talk because from the Clips I saw, it sounded like a whole hot mess. 
Yeah, thanks, Joy, for having me. Yeah, to, it, this was an unmitigated disaster. And obviously, it's a shame the Republicans are about to shut down the government because they need FEMA's help. That's how bad <laughs> today was. Uh, I mean, I just it, it, they were not prepared uh, in the very first minute. Their own witness, and I wasn't surprised because it was in the written testimony, comes out and says everything you've been working on for the last eight months, everything that you have presented to the American people does not rise to the level of impeachment. That's their own witness. It was awkward. You know, it, it was just like it, it, I, I started to feel like kind of bad, like this is Clearly what they didn't plan for Fox News today. I mean, Jonathan Turley is is not someone who's not interested in, in, in getting Democrats. Right. Like he he's pretty motivated, I think, to try to find some reason to impeach Joe Biden. I think that he would love to do it if he could say we, they should do it. He, he would. He didn't. He said, no, no, there's nothing here. Their forensic accountant, his name is Bruce Dubinsky, also said, Mm-mm, there's nothing. Eileen O'Connor, a former assistant attorney general in the Justice Department's tax division, said Mm-mm, nothing. Was there a single witness, uh, Congressman, on their side who presented evidence that Joe Biden somehow was taking bribes, apparently during the timeline when he was neither president nor vice president, because all this is supposed to have taken place while he was sitting home in, in Delaware? no. No, not a single shred of evidence, not a new fact, nothing. It was a recitation of the last eight months. It was it was a, a panel to kind of comment on on what the Republicans have been working on. I mean, all they did was say, you know, you know, the Biden family and and, and Hunter Biden and Jim Biden and and Commander Biden, the dog. You know, they 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 can never they never mention Joe Biden. They never say Joe Biden did X because it's not there. There's no evidence of that. By the way, they filed articles of impeachment. Some of them filed articles of impeachment two weeks into the Biden administration, right after January 6th, before a single hearing took place. So they're so gung-ho. Joy, they they refused to call the vote. I gave them the opportunity. Call the vote right now. Call the vote for impeachment in the hearing. And and Comer pretended like I didn't even say it. It's because they don't have the votes because they don't have any evidence on Joe Biden. You know, and Basil, it, it feels like this impeachment is about their emotions. Mm. They're very upset that Donald Trump has been indicted four times, faces 92 counts, and they're very upset he was impeached twice. Yeah. And so it appears that they're impeaching Joe Biden as revenge for Donald Trump being impeached because also he's telling him to. Well, they're picking up his talking points. You know, Donald Trump talks, he talks about retribution, he talks about reclamation, and essentially what they're trying to do is reclaim his stature or his integrity or whatever it is uh, to the American people. They're doing neither of that. It's a useless exercise uh, engaged by feckless Republicans on con- in Congress. And, and I, yeah, go ahead. And, and, and w- to, in your tease, in your lead up, there's a UAW strike. Student loans are coming back on. Yes. And people got to start repaying those. Yeah. And they're not talking about these issues. They're, they, they, they're about to subpoena the dog uh, to have <laughs> him testify. You know, there's, there is such a thing as political theater, but this is fan fiction. Well, the thing it, about it is if they, do, if they follow this political theater to its logical conclusion, we are to believe that when Joe Biden was no longer vice president, he had no actual power because he was nice to his son who was living with them. So his business wasn't doing that great because his address was his dad's address, mm. that somehow he was conferring 
um, favor on him that he didn't have to confer because he wasn't in office and Trump was president. And then we're going to drag through this man's life. And what we're going to find out is that he was a drug addict. How many Americans are going to empathize with this guy, Hunter Biden, both of whose siblings are dead, who's had nothing but sad tragedy in his life, who suffered a lot. His dad has suffered a lot. They've only got each other and their little family. All you're going to do is make him more sympathetic. I don't even understand it from a political point of view. The more we go on, you're going to realize, oh, Biden didn't even have any power at the time. And the son is sort of a sad story. And create actually sympathy for Biden because a father who loves his son tremendously. That's what they're majoring for. And can't help him. And can't do anything can't, for him. Can't do anything for him. And it's very clear that he's not going to do anything for him. And, and two very quick things, because this is also, particularly when you pay attention to the, the testimony today, yeah. it's a victory for accountability. Because who's going to go up there and lie on behalf of these members of Congress uh, and get in trouble because they've now seen people actually go to jail <laughs> or become indicted or get called to the carpet because they're lying and they should have no business doing that. I also want to say, just remember back after the Affordable Care Act, when Republicans said, we're going to take this down, we're going to repeal it, we're going to uh-huh. do it. Repeal and replace. Nothing. 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 Same thing. C- Congressman, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. After, As the hearing was wrapping up, Byron Donalds, uh, who was quite certain he was going to be speaker, uh, even though the Texas Republican who was nominating him later admitted not was just because you're black, dude. We just wanted a black guy because they had a black guy. But, you know, he was real sure because he said he was in the room and they said he was going to be speaker. Byron Donalds is now... Um, posted a tweet uh, in which he was trying to defend the fact that his false information, his fake text, um, he said, Jared Kushner has a legitimate business where he raised investment capital. That's the $2 billion from the Saudis. Hunter Biden had no legitimate business. The money collected was spent on him and his family. No comparison. Your thoughts. Do you have any response to him? Well, first of all, let's just talk about it, right? Jared Kushner worked in the West Wing of the White House. He had no experience in Mideast peace, but was put in charge of Mideast peace. He also couldn't get a, his, his clearance. He couldn't get a security clearance, but they overruled him to get him a security clearance, right? And so he he's works with the Saudis. He's in the Middle East. The administration ends, and all of a sudden he gets $2 billion from the Saudis. What was that for? I mean, by the way, no foreign government sending me $2 billion. I mean, so this is ridiculous. There are legitimate questions why Jared Kushner got $2 billion to run a hedge fund. By the way, he had no experience to run a hedge fund either. So, yeah, it's very comparable, but they're not interested in finding out why a foreign government would send Donald Trump's son-in-law $2 billion. No, because it's Donald Trump, right? That's why they're not interested. And that's why they have no credibility, Joy. They just have no credibility on the subject. Otherwise, Jared Kushner would be in front of a committee and they'd be asking, hey, Jared, you know, people just don't send $2 billion to people. You must have done something for them or promised them something. Yeah. I, I will also note that during the hearing at one point, one Democratic member said, raise your hand if there's if there is adjudicated cr- criminality from both Hunter Biden and Donald Trump. Would you support both of them being held accountable? Only the Democrats raised their hand. So it's it's a sham. And, you know, keep the government open. How about that? Okay. Pay for the government. Do that. Republicans. Congressman Jared Moskowitz. Thank you very much. Basil Smichel. Thank you very much. Coming up, the second Republican debate was chock full of cringeworthy moments and fact checkable lies. I watched it so that you don't have to. You're welcome. And some of my, well, I don't know, favorite is the right word. Let's just say the most memorable moments are straight ahead. Stay right there. Hey, 
Excuse me. Line, excuse excuse me. Uh, thank you for speaking while I'm interrupting. Literally. While I'm speaking. Well, no, you said by paper. If I may finish. You can't be on both sides. Gentlemen, you'll have your turn. One of the challenges we should have a Everybody knows that. If I may, if I may address on holding Joe Biden accountable. That's what we need to be. I actually agree with Ron DeSantis. Speaking at the same time. That was a summary of last night's Republican presidential debate. In case you were lucky enough to miss it. Some of the seven little Smurfs on the Fox stage tried to get it a shot at the Gargamel who was not in the room. Donald Trump. But not for any of the reasons that you'd think, since the moderators didn't think it was worth asking uh, any of his supposed rivals about Trump's four indictments, him being found liable for sexual abuse, the ruling against him for defrauding lenders by lying about how much his properties were worth, or his recent threats to execute General Mark Milley, the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In true MAGA Republican fashion, they also didn't think to ask about the upcoming Kevin McCarthy government shutdown. Good times. Joining me now to break down what's being called the Seinfeld debate about nothing is Brian Taylor, Brian Tyler Cohen. I want to call you Brian T- Taylor Cohen. I think you should just change your name because every time I have All you right. on, I'm like, Brian Taylor Cohen. In my mind, there's an A before the Y, but my name is Joanne and people call me Joanne. So, you know, I, you know, there we go. Um, the MSNBC YouTube host and political contributor. All right, Brian. To the extent you can say there's a winner in a poop show. Did anybody win <laughs> that mess? <laughs> well, I, I suppose we can say the only one with even a modicum of a game plan here was Nikki Haley. Um, she had a few good lines. I think one line that that stuck out especially was she told Vivek Ramaswamy, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber, which <laughs> which I felt like was a brief moment of unity from all sides here. Uh, uh, yeah, we all felt dumber. <laughs> OK, well, we yeah. don't even have to play it because you've quoted it, per, uh, uh, you know, uh, perfectly. Let's talk about anybody who was a loser. Was there a clear loser? Well, uh, I feel like all of us, but if we have to get specific here, uh, I would probably say Ron DeSantis because momentum is everything in these campaigns. DeSantis has anti-momentum. Ron DeSantis is where momentum goes to die. His job here coming into this debate after months of watching his poll numbers continue to descend and go lower and lower and lower was to commandeer some moment to recover that momentum. And he failed to do that. So he failed in doing his only job. It's clear that his poll numbers will continue to drop after this. So yeah, yeah, I would say given what his job was supposed to be coming into this uh, debate, he did fail. Okay. Let's just play him for a minute because he's also really super weird. Uh, Let's play this because I feel like this is his problem is I don't think he knows how to smile and even infants know how to smile, but he doesn't take a look. When they send me a bloating spending bill that's going to cause your prices to go up, I'm going to take out this veto pen and I'm going to send it right back to them. Ilya, you mentioned the question. I just want to. (laughs) What is that? What is that thing he does after he talks and goes? I think what would help Ron is if we could just figure out some way to do something about his face and his voice. But other than that, he's doing great. He's doing great. Uh, Another. Well, there were a couple. There was my two cringy moments were. Uh, Tim Scott basically saying that the black father was much more present during slavery. I kind of feel like they sold the black father during slavery. So I'm really not sure they were doing really well, but that they were really poorly served under LBJ's great society. That was weird. I think the ancestors were cringing. But then there was this moment. Let me play it. This is two people talking about weird, like older people sex. I think (laughs) they are. Do we have it? Oh, maybe it's so weird that we can't play it. 
Oh, okay, it's coming, it's coming, here we go. Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight, not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's gonna happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is gonna call you Donald Trump anymore. We're gonna call you Donald Duck. Okay, by the way, Marco Rubio called me once his dignify, his, his lack of dignity back. Cause you, he literally just did what he accused Marco Rubio of doing. That wasn't it though. This is the, the soundbite. Here it is. Here's the other cringy moment. When you have the president of the United States sleeping with a member of the teachers union, there is no chance that you could take the stranglehold away from the teachers union every day. Full disclosure, Chris, you mentioned the president's situation. I'm, my wife, uh, isn't a member of the teachers union, but I got to admit, I've, I've been sleeping with a teacher for 38 years. And um, the full disclosure. Brian, you talk. I, I, I know that George W. Bush presided over all of the torture during his presidential campaign, but that that the amount of torture it took to get that joke out of Mike Pence's mouth was uh, was was just pretty incredible. I mean, George W. Bush would be proud. <laughs> The only thing that would have made that better is if Tim Scott had chimed in and been like, well, I'm single and it's not even clear that I'm not a virgin, so I'm definitely not sleeping with a teacher. If he had said that, I would have yeah. said he won the debate. That's what he should have said. Also, the, the idea that, that Joe Biden is sleeping with a member of the G, I'm like, I'm like, are you, do you mean married to? Do you mean married for decades to Dr. Joe Biden? Like, man, oh, man. These people are not ready for prime time. I don't even think, I think Trump is like, they can't even be my vice president because they're too lame. Well, let me just say to that point, let's remember that despite the winner and the loser and all of this stuff, none of these people are really playing to win. They are playing for maybe Trump's vice presidential slot, maybe for some slot in 2028. Yeah. But the idea that anyone running even themselves believes that they have a <laughs> shot at the nomination here is a joke. And that is a testament to, to just how much of a cult the GOP has devolved into. Like this is the law and order party that is wholly owned right ridiculous. now yeah. by a guy currently contending with four indictments and 91 criminal charges. It, it was it was ridiculous. They all trying to get podcasts and they ain't even going to get that because they're not that charismatic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Brian Tyler. Well, not Cohen. everybody could beat Ted Cruz. So correct. Brian Tyler Cohen. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. We'll be right back. <laughs> That's tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.